Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that you continually speak to us to your, through your word. We ask your Holy Spirit now to speak into hearts and minds that we may be changed, may see your purposes for our lives, and bring you honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a huge privilege to be back. Whatever Mo Mary's motives were. <laughs> Marsha and I and kids left Truro 34 years ago last month. At the time, Sarah was 13, Katie was 10. Our foster daughter, Dawn, was about to be 19. Our son, Peter, wasn't born until a year and a half after we got to Florida. But I don't think I can overemphasize how formative our 11 years here were, first as seminarian, then as an assistant. So much of the love of Jesus was displayed here. So much of the tools that we were giving, given for ministry came through the Lord through this place. And now to be back, the last time I was in this pulpit, the last day I was in this pulpit, was my goodbye sermon. It's strange to be back. To quote baseball great Yogi Berra, it feels like deja vu all over again. <laughs> My task this morning, however, is not to go into our history. As grateful as we are for this place and the things we've learned here, we'll talk about that uh, at the luncheon. But it's simply to focus on the familiar parable, perhaps sometimes overly familiar parable of Jesus. In other words, we have encountered it so often, most of us think we've got it down. But I want to suggest that the parable of the prodigal son, as it's commonly known, can speak powerfully into our hearts today if we have ears to hear. Now, to get us into the emotion of it a little bit, I need to tell you that a week ago on Sunday, I was in Jerusalem. I had taken my grandson, Benjamin, with me for a week of visiting there. He hadn't been there since he was six, really wanted to get back. I happened to have a free week, and it was his spring break. Before we left for Israel, the archbishop uh, caught me and said, would you mind, while you're in Israel, making a detour and going to Poland? That is a detour. <laughs> He asked me to ordain a woman there who would, after she became a deacon, uh, would be eligible for a clergy visa and to, for her to return to Israel, where she'd been in ministry. She'd be tied to Christ Church Jerusalem, which is the Anglican church there inside the old city walls, oldest Protestant church in the uh, Middle East. Uh, and I thought, oh, sure, that's a privilege. Christ Church has been on our hearts a long time. Uh, we're very tied to the ministry of CMJ, and more about that at the luncheon as well, the church's ministry to Jewish people, and I notice it's still one of your ministries listed on the board out there, for which we're grateful. So I said, sure, and Benjamin was all up for it. He's about to be 15, and one set of plane flights to another country is adventure world. He was happy. Did the ordination. Originally, there were going to be five of us there, and uh, by God's mercy, uh, six more showed up. I can't tell you how right at the moment, but it was amazing. 
What I need to tell you as backstory is, while I made the arrangement with the Archbishop, Nina, that's her first name, was in Kiev. And she was simply going to come across to Poland and be ordained. Didn't look like a big problem. But two days later, the war broke out. So then it became a question of, would she get there? And by God's mercy, and after a harrowing experience, she did make it to Poland. So much more I could say about that situation, but it was a very powerful time to be in Poland. The five who showed up were working with refugee ministry, and, one, and two of them were tied to one of the churches in my diocese. Uh, and, uh, and the rest were from a team working with them, and they met Nina, and to show you how God works, Nina has already started working with them, because she is a Ukrainian, speaks Russian, speaks Ukrainian, speaks some Polish, and is fluent in English, as well as the fact that she's a, uh, a Bible college professor and knows Hebrew and Greek. I feel a little embarrassed only knowing one language. Wonderful lady, but the, the fact that God put that together was miraculous. What, what an, uh, at a time. Well, we get back to Jerusalem, and I need to sign our ordination certificates. We didn't take them with us because we needed them in Jerusalem in order to apply for the visa. So I go from Christ Church over to the offices of CMJ in another part of, of Jerusalem, uh, sign off the documents used by Bishop's ring to put wax seal on it, as is the custom, and, and we headed back. In the meantime, we did one errand walking through part of Jerusalem. We get back, and I discovered that I didn't have my phone. Now, I've lost it before, but I've never lost it in a foreign country the day before I had to return to America. And on it was information we needed to get home. We could have figured out another way, but it was pretty much phone-centric. So I'll just put it this way, I got nervous. Thinking, well, if it's the, the office we were just at, no problem. But what if it fell out when I was on the streets? My almost 15-year-old grandson, Benjamin, said, Papa, which is what he calls me, what are you worried about? Just go to your iPad and hit the Find the Phone app. And that's what we did, and we found it. <laughs> Happily sitting back in the office where we'd been. But I don't know about you, but when I lose something, there's a sense of a loss of control. And if it's something valuable, it gets a little more tense uh, as, it, as it sort of goes up the value scale. There's just something radically, there's a sense of loss. Even if you think you'll find it again, there's still that, that experience of, of being somehow disoriented, confused, in pain. It's almost threatening. What we see in Luke chapter 15 is Jesus gives three parables about lost things. The first case, he talks about a lost sheep. Doesn't seem like a necessarily big deal. There are 99 others. Why is it so exciting to the shepherd to get him back? Well, on one hand, shepherds love their sheep and love uh, taking care of them. On another hand, we sometimes miss, if you're a shepherd who's lost your sheep, you've lost your reputation. 
And then he tells the story of a lost coin. Well, we've all dropped coins. Why is that a big story? And the woman tearing her house apart to find it, probably because it was one of the coins of her dowry, which was usually worn sort of as a necklace. There'd be several of them. And to lose one, particularly if she hadn't been careful, would threaten the marriage. It would be the equivalent of losing a wedding ring. No small thing. But finally, the most famous of all, of course, is the story of the prodigal or lost son. Prodigal in the sense that he wasted the resources he had when he took off uh, from home. Jesus tells these three parables to a mixed, very mixed group. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's one group, one part of the mixture. Sinners were those who were not keeping all the traditions and sometimes not keeping all of the scriptures. They were sort of on the spiritual outs, if you will. They were the fringe. They couldn't be relied on by the religious. And the tax collectors were worse in some sense. I mean, nobody likes a tax collector. Some things haven't changed. But one of the things that's going on here is you need to understand that at the time of Jesus, a tax collector got his position through a bidding war with others. And the one who promised to squeeze the most out of the population got the job from the Romans. How to make yourself unpopular. There, that group, the outsiders. And then there were the other group. So we'll call them the prodigal. They're the ones who from at least a Jewish religious point of view are wasting their lives aren't to be trusted, but then they're the proud. We hear them in verse two, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How can he be a holy man if he's hanging out with folks like that? And in response, Jesus tells these stories about lost things. We're just gonna look at the lost son parable. It's really the parable of two lost sons. I'll explain that. It's, we look at a, the family, the two sons and their father. And then at the end, I want to consider for a moment what is called in the story the far country. So the family and the far country. The family. Two different ways to get lost. That's what's really going on in the story. Two different sons who are lost in various ways. Two different ways to be separated from the father. And the parable itself would have been shocking to those listening to it. Don't forget that he's addressing it both to the outs and the ins, the ones who look like sinners and the ones who uh, are seeing themselves as religiously righteous. He's got to hit both groups somehow. But it's shocking, first of all, because the younger son asks for his inheritance before his father dies. It's essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, give me the money. Unbelievable. And then he leaves the Jewish community to live in a, like a pagan in a far country. It's shameful. It's heartbreaking. Reminds me of a time in my life in, in my church in Florida where there was a young man who had the whole world line up before him. He was valedictorian of his prep school class. I helped him write his graduation speech. But just a few years later, he became addicted to drugs, 
and ended up being imprisoned for several years for armed robbery. His parents, of course, were heartbroken, they were heartbroken and they talked to very few people about what they were dealing with. In this parable, the young son's desperation as his life falls apart in the fall country, a far country, as he runs out of money, as he's feeding pigs, he realizes he needs to get home. But he's not the only lost son. The, other, the older brother is lost too. And his words to his father when he finds out that the brother is coming home would have also shocked Jesus' listeners. Because this son, this older son, the one who would get the major part of the inheritance, the one who would get all of the land, does not treat working for his father as a privilege, as a family venture. He treats it as drudgery. You can see it in the way he speaks about it. He sees his relationship with the father as a slave to a master, not as a son to a father. We don't quite pick it up unless we examine the text a little more carefully. Luke 15, 29, he says to the father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a single child who could have said that last part. <laughs> But to get the sense of what's going on here, it's better to translate it, I have slaved for you following your orders. That's not a son to a father. That's somebody who's just grinding it out. And then he goes on to reprimand his father for celebrating the return of his lost brother, although he doesn't talk about it that way. He doesn't say, look what you're doing for my brother. He says, this son of yours. He distances himself from his own brother. And so what we see is we look at these two sons are two ways to lose joy and intimacy with God. The first is the path of the youngest son. He's got a set of desires that he wants fulfilled, he, sexual and otherwise. And he knows he can't do that by staying at home, so he follows those deceitful desires and they lead him into destruction. He goes off the track and does huge damage. Reminds me of a close friend of mine who resigned from his church for real fault on his part, though not as flagrant as in many of the better known cases. Years later, he wrote this. What I will say is that my actual sinful acts were far less than one might imagine but the consequences, pain and harm, which I caused were far greater than any nightmare can conjure. He, would go, he went on to write this, the wages of sin really is death. Through an act of thoughtless, faithless, and cowardly selfishness, I had murdered the life which my family and I had worked so hard to build. And I did grievous harm to the church I had served for over 20 years. Like St. Paul, I found myself dead in my sin, crying out, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I need to add that my friend rediscovered the grace and mercy of Jesus, and he and his wife have been working together to help others facing similar distress. God has redeemed a mess. 
Well, the young brother returns home thinking that he's lost his identity as a son and can now only be a servant. But notice the father totally ignores that uh, perspective altogether and throws a welcome home celebration for this lost son. Let's now consider the older brother. Because he had an inadequate view of his father's love for him, he fell into another trap. Let's call it joyless judgment. He had plenty to say about how bad the younger brother was. He doesn't even admit that it's his brother, this son of yours rather than this brother of mine. He perceives himself, if you think about it, as himself versus his brother. And like us, he's stuck. We get stuck in a us versus them mindset. We judge the people around us. Social media doesn't help at all. It demands that we show our thumbs up or our thumbs down. And the news that comes our way is reported competitively with little attempt at balance. And Christians are sadly complicit in choosing sides in all sorts of the conflicts in our culture and judging. I was struck by a reporter who was speaking to a Ukrainian woman who has relatives in Russia. The reporter said, which side are you on? And she paused for a moment and she said, I'm on the human one. But everything in our culture calls us to take sides. We see everything as win-lose. Each of us has what I would call the Goldilocks syndrome. We look out at the world and we think people are too fat or too thin, too overeducated or too undereducated, too liberal or too conservative, too far right, too far left, too self-effacing or too self-promoting. The list goes on and on. But the assumption in all of that is somehow or another, I am just right. <laughs> and the people who agree with me are just right too. But there's no real joy in that when we're judgmental. It's just the feeling of pride, of being, uh, feeling proud to be right. And we rarely question our own values or even where they came from. And we ignore God's point of view that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there are actually two paths away from God. One is following our own sinful desires toward destruction, and we're all good at it. We all have areas where we give ourselves permission to do things that we know aren't right. And then there's another part of us that's judging others because we're better. And both temptations are part of our lives. We're like one brother at the one moment and the other brother the next. But in thinking about it, I want to close with two challenges. The first is to recognize that the story isn't just about the lost sons, but it's primarily about the merciful and sacrificial father, the one who is in the finding business. Sam Pasco, a long-time friend whom I got to know here at Truro over 40 years ago and is now back at Truro as they moved back to this area, wrote this about Rembrandt's famous painting of the return of the prodigal son. Sam says, 
In Rembrandt's, in Rembrandt's masterpiece, the prodigal is worn and haggard. He is shoeless and his head shaven. In mourning or shame or both, he clings to his father, broken by the choices he has made and leaning on the one person who still loves him. Focus on the father, the one who still loves you. Cling to him. So I challenge you, is that what you really understand God to be like in, the, in your heart? The one you can cling to, the one you can lean on no matter what? Or are you like both sons in the business of thinking, I just have to either work hard to be a servant at least, not a son anymore, or the other one feeling like I've worked so hard you owe me and you shouldn't give anything to anybody else. Do you really understand the love and mercy of God in your heart toward you? That he wants you to experience being his beloved child and not a slave. That's the first challenge. The second one comes from the far country. I need to tell you that the far country is not so much geographically far. It's a far country from a Jewish perspective because it's culturally and religiously far. Benjamin, my grandson, and I went to Scythopolis while we were in Israel. It's between the Dead Sea, I mean, excuse between the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem. It's right in the area of Israel in the time of, of Jesus. It was one of the 10 cities, the Decapolis that you read about, but it's 10 Greco-Roman cities in the midst of Israel with all the entertainments and temptations and prostitution and everything else that would be expected in a totally different culture. Even though Scythopolis itself is just a few miles from the Sea of Galilee. When, the, when Jesus was talking about a far country, he almost certainly was talking about a religiously or culturally far pagan country. How do we know? Well, one hint is they're pigs. That's how, it's one way to know. The other is that there's prostitution mentioned, which is always, almost always tied to pagan worship, pagan temples. So the sun went far away, even though he probably didn't go that far in terms of distance. But I want us to understand that Jesus came to us when we were in a far country, each one of us. He came from heaven to land in this world and reach out to us who need him. And now we're to be joined with the Lord in his rescue Mission. The Father's heart's desire is reconciliation with his children, all done through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ Jesus, God was, was recon reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There it is, God reconciling the world to himself. That's the mission done through Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. He's saying, we're in a kingdom. We're in God's kingdom by God's grace. And there are people around us who are in another kingdom. And they need ambassadors to hear about 
our king being represented and hearing the good news from us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, just as the younger son is reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think of the robe putting, being placed on that haggard prodigal son, a new robe, dressing him up, putting a robe over him. We have, if you will, the robe of righteousness because our sin was placed on Christ and he put his righteousness on us. Un, unimaginable mercy. So not only were we in far countries, but we are surrounded by people who may be right next door to us, but they're in far countries too. They're far from God. I'll close with a story. A few years ago now, a woman came to our deck in Jacksonville, brought by another friend of ours. She spent about an hour on the deck explaining why she was an atheist, and she had all the reasons. In fact, she was not only an atheist, she was blogging as an atheist and had several hundred people following her blog. It was her identity, it was her mission. We sort of said standard things that you might say, questioning somebody who's, if you will, having the faith to be an atheist. And it wasn't going anywhere. And so I went inside to get a drink uh, and uh, just clear my brain for a minute. And I, I actually prayed a prayer I learned here at Truro through John Wimber. Some of you remember him. It's a very simple prayer. It was, help. And I followed up by saying, Lord, if there's something about her that I need to see, please show it to me. Also something Wimber used to teach about. And instantly, I had a sense that the Lord said to me, she gave her life to me when she was a child, and now I am after her. And my first reaction, to be honest with you, was, haven't you been listening to the conversation out on the deck? <laughs> And then I thought, what am I going to say to her? She's going to think I'm crazy. And then I thought, well, nothing else is happening. So I turned to her because she had followed me in. And I said, I know, I know this may sound strange, but I think you gave your life to Christ when you were a child. And now he's after you. I wish you could have seen her face. It almost looked like I slapped her. She was silent for a moment. And then she said, I think you're right. And then she shared, uh, not that day, but a, a few days later, we stayed in sort of constant touch, Marsha more than I, but uh, she shared that two weeks before she'd been suicidal and she had prayed, God, if you're there, show yourself to me. And then she went on with her life. She'd totally forgotten the prayer until I said what I said to her. And then at that point, she realized God hadn't forgotten her prayer at all. In fact, she even brought, her, even brought her to the house of a bishop and his wife. What can I say? But it wasn't us. It was the Lord. It was the Holy Spirit. She became a radical disciple. And she and the man she ended up marrying, who had a sort of similar story, uh, have been 
used in ministry reaching others outside of Christ for years now. You have people in your life who are in a far country where you're bumping into them all the time. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe you are somebody who's decided to go a particular path away from the Lord and you really have no idea that you could ever get back or even not sure you have any desire to get back. But the Father wants you back, wants you home. If there are people around you like that, don't give up on them. I came to Christ when my dad was 57. He was an agnostic from a Jewish background. Decades later, he came to faith, and I baptized him when he was 84. Don't give up. Don't write off anyone. So consider the family, this prodigal son, his brother, and father. How are you tempted to be like the son who's following his own desires? then how are you tempted to judge others and not see your own sin? And finally, the second challenge, are you willing to be an ambassador of good news to people in the far country who are around you? Just as others were an ambassador reaching you at one point in your life. And if you're not willing to, why not? That's a good prayer to ask the Lord. What's the problem? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that you reached out to us when we were in a far country. We could not have turned ourselves around. And that you welcomed us not to be uh, slaves, but to be sons and daughters and even friends. Remind us of your mercy and then compel us by your spirit to share that good news with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.